90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Freezing through another ice storm, man. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be weekly for you. We've had a yeah. sort of like freezing fog every morning here, but it hadn't been bad. Yeah, ours is a freezy drizzle. Um, I'm getting ready to go to a drilling workshop back in Arizona, so I'm pretty excited about that. But I hope I can uh, don't have your level of luck at the airport tomorrow morning. I hope I can get out. Um, so. We'll see. <laughs> so are you going to be in Tucson? Um, no, I'm flying into Phoenix, but the workshop is in Parker, Arizona. So it's kind of halfway in between um, if you draw a line from Phoenix to Las Vegas. And so it's way up there. It's at a casino, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, drilling and gambling are pretty similar. So. It's absolutely true. <laughs> um, but it's, it's way out there because it's close to um, the field area where I've been working out there. So we're going to go on a pretty big field trip up and down the Arizona-Nevada border and uh, check out some drill sites and talk about some Magstrat and a whole bunch of other awesome stuff. Um, so this is one of those big NSF-funded you know, pre-drilling discovery workshops. And I'm really excited about it because I've heard of lots of people going to these, but I've never been involved in one. And I'm actually involved in two in a row. So it's going to be a rough couple weeks, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one uh, one out in Arizona and the other one's here in Norman um, for a Western Oklahoma Drill Corps, potentially. But we can talk more about that later. Yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah. So how about you? Oh, you know, just... Uh... Staying real busy trying to, to pack and get some jobs closed out and yeah, <laughs> all, all the things that. that have to happen. Don't envy that at all. <laughs> yeah, and actually repairing some of our uh, our damage from the hailstorms over the summer. So it's been quite an eventful week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we still actually have damage on a field cam from some of those massive hailstorms that we will have to uh, get fixed too. That was craziness. So we'll see what uh, Mother Nature has in store for us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so before we get onto our topic, I had a reminder and a news item. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the reminder is, listeners, don't forget to take the survey. Uh, I'm going to leave it open for seven more days. Okay. Yes. So by the time the show airs next week, it will be closed. And thank you to those of you that have responded. We've got a lot of great suggestions for topics, people to interview, things like that. And uh, we'll go over some more of the, the results in a couple weeks right right i would like to personally thank whoever said that one of their favorite parts is me laughing at my own jokes (laughs) (laughs) that makes me real happy (laughs) somebody has to Shannon. that's exactly right (laughs) (laughs) um so what's your news item what's happened that i missed so this was a news item about the grand canyon i actually saw this in a real physical newspaper if you can believe that those still exist oh what uh (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but it was actually front page news in USA Today about a week ago. This is craziness. And so apparently uh, somebody had collected some uh, rock samples from around the Grand Canyon area. They were in five-gallon buckets in the visitor center, and they were moving them around, storing them. And they decided to store them under a, I believe it was a taxidermy exhibit in the visitor center. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> And it just so happens that uh, I think it was a park ranger's child that was sort of into Geiger counters and radiation was just snooping around with one and found out that, oh, wow, it's really hot in this spot of the visitor center. 
This is unbelievable. And it's because these buckets were uh, pretty decent uranium ore, it turns out. Oh, my gosh. Number one, leave it to a geologist to just put some buckets of rocks underneath a table. <laughs> you know, like wherever. But, I mean, there's a lot of uranium ore out there. This isn't like this is a strange rock for the area. But I guess, you know, enough of a concentration of it in these three big paint buckets um, was at least enough to make some people nervous, right? Yeah, so if you were an adult and stood by this uh, display looking in, uh, it took about 30 seconds to get your yearly dose. Okay. I mean, I don't know what the average time of people standing in front of displays is, but I bet it's around there. Yeah, and there apparently are some benches and places for people sit for presentations that are sort of near it. Mm -hmm. And they were a little concerned about how much exposure school children may have gotten. But we're not talking about, you know, we're taking years off your life and you're going to have major health problems. This is just more of a, oops. <laughs> don't don't go near a nuclear power plant in the next year and you'll be okay. Sort of levels of radiation. <laughs> I mean, you know, getting a year or a couple years dose is nothing to, nothing to look away from. Uh but I think the the general fear of radiation has gotten a lot more people a little more worked up mm -hmm. than than might be necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like I said, I mean, these rocks are pretty common out there. So I mean, if you spend a lot of time a lot of time out there anyway, you're probably getting you know not this concentrated dose, but you're still getting it anyway. Yeah, and I mean, I would not want to, you see in some of the photos online. And when they were removing these, that people were in the, the suits and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, that makes it look kind of extreme, but carrying the buckets out of the visitor center to the truck, that's a year right. of dose right, right. there. So yeah, exactly. It's wise to use protection. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but I'm not, too, I'm not too worried as somebody who has stood in front of that exhibit, definitely while these were there. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Me too, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, my, my daughter only has three arms, so she's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> you, counted, you counted the fingers and toes, and there are still 12, right? That's right. <laughs> okay. We're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting, though, and I think it's, I, it's not funny that they're, you know, uranium-filled rocks, but it is funny that, you know, how long did these sit here, you know, that somebody just forgot about, you know? Maybe we should pay the Park Service a little bit more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also heartwarming to know that there's another little nerd running around out there with a Geiger counter. With a Geiger counter. <laughs> oh, a Geiger counter enthusiast. I hope you have that domain name locked down. <laughs> <laughs> going to go check right now. Oh, great. I'm going to check magnetometerenthusiast.com. <laughs> oh, yeah, because we're going to talk about magnetometers. And we actually got some feedback this week uh, from a listener who is experimenting with different types ah. of geophysical sensors for fun and has been playing with a Fluxgate magnetometer. Oh, nice. Well, that's yeah. exciting. So see, you're not the only Fluxgate enthusiast. <laughs> no, but now we're going to talk about one that's really cool. Oh, yeah. This one's weird. The Proton Precession Magnetometer. It's just fun to say. It is. And this is the magnetometer that's currently sitting in my garage. Oh, Okay. Because uh, mm -hmm. you stole so the, it from somewhere. No, this is one of the. This is one of my eBay finds. Ah, God! Uh. You can find <laughs> anything on eBay. This blows my mind. Oh my gosh! That and your old Geiger counter too, right? 
<laughs> you have one of the old civil defense Geiger counters. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so the school... OU has a couple of these, right? These old proton precession magnetometers. I think this is what I probably used when I did geophysics out at field camp. Yeah, so that you have a few uh, geometrics makes some pretty nice portable ones, and they're they're not nearly as expensive as an alkali vapor magnetometer, which we'll talk about next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're they're thousands of dollars. Okay. Uh, so for a brand new one, you know, probably think in the $8,000 range for something used, uh, several thousand. And for one that is really old and doesn't work when you get it, think a few hundred. Okay. All right. So not too, not too out of the realm of buying on eBay. Um, so where, do, where does proton precession magnetometer live in terms of the origins of magnetometers? Is this older than the flux gate? Younger? So it's younger than the flux gate okay. from everything I could find anyway. Yeah. Uh, I did not find a, you know, so-and-so invented the proton precession magnetometer in 19 and something. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. But uh, I, I do believe it's it's younger than that, but it's still a relatively old design. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a lot more ways to measure now. Mm-hmm. And it used to be a really common survey instrument. So you mentioned that you used it, yeah. field camp. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that they're not so popular anymore is they're slow. Right. You can't just walk around and get a reading, right? You've got to kind of stand there and acquire for a while. Yeah. So something like one hertz is the maximum update rate. Yeah. Uh-huh. Generally, yeah. it's you press the button and you wait for three or four seconds. And gotcha. then you get a reading. Yeah. Uh, but they're incredibly accurate. So see, sometimes it's worth slowing down. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a part per million pretty easily here. That's pretty good. Yeah, that <laughs> especially considering good. there's magnetic fields only, what, you know, 77,000 nanoteslas for yep. number? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so much less than a nanotesla. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's awesome. And didn't we stick one of these on a pole out at field camp when you were there? Did we not do this? And just let it sit I, there for a day, and we could see all kinds of cool stuff. Well, right. So remember, if you remember, I don't think this story has been told on the show, but that pole is the origin of Lehman Geophysical. Ha! <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I didn't put that together. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay. So, yes, we, we took a PVC pipe and built a little rock cairn around it and uh, put the magnetometer in it, let it sit out there for as long as it would until the battery ran dead. And recorded data, I think, once a minute. And that was to show uh, the actual diurnal variation of the Earth's magnetic field. Which was quite a bit more than I thought it was, really. Yeah, and it always frustrates me. Well, it frustrated me as a student, and that's why I recorded that. And now I try to improve that when I do get to teach, though I don't really teach a lot of geophysics now. Uh, Is, no, don't tell me the Earth's magnetic field oscillates diurnally and show some cartoon sketch of it show me data (laughs) yeah because you know it really didn't take that long to stick that thing in the ground and just let it go till it died and you can i mean you can pull usgs reference station data for years and look at it i I just don't understand why we don't show students data yeah there are some weird spiky things in it and if we're afraid of them asking us about it well don't be (laughs) because it's fine to say you don't know what that is yes it is fine. 
but but showing real data is something I think is important, and collecting it, even though we can't go download it off the internet, that just makes you that much closer to the data. This is your diurnal field variation. You're right, exactly. I mean, and and, and at OU, you would spell it with the O and the U capitalized. It's your. Oh, 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 oh my lord! Did they pay you to say that? <laughs> no, I expect the cease and desist soon, though. Oh, yes, that is absolutely true. We are much more corporate these days. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there's a there is a big push to get more data in the classroom. You'll be happy to know. So that's exactly what you should do because then you, if all you've seen is that cartoon smoothed out version, once you get real data, you might think it's like a sensor problem or something like that instead of you know actual messy earth magnetic field. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this but was, I digress. This, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, this was really fun, though. Like, it, it stuck out in my mind enough um, that this was really cool. But, I mean, this little thing on a stick didn't look like much. It was just a, another bigger cylinder on a stick. Yeah, I remember at the IRS uh, meeting that we had back <laughs> in October, and when they were showing off different geophysical instruments, everybody was laughing. We're like, hey, you know, it's this new thing, and it does awesome. Uh, it's so much better resolution, so much faster, so much lower power but it's the same silver cylinder on the outside. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to hear that. (laughs) They all look the same. Oh, God, that's hilarious. If it ain't broke. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So anyway, when we're talking about a proton precession magnetometer, the name really says all of it, but it's not intuitive. Yes. Okay. There's some protons processing in what? (laughs) Yeah, so you need something that has a lot of hydrogen in it, so you get a lot of protons. Protons, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like, Single protons. Yeah, that seems to make sense. And uh, what has a lot of hydrogen in it? Well, I would have said water, but I know it's not water. Didn't we put lighter fluid in it once or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can use water, uh, good old dihydrogen monoxide. Yep. <laughs> and that will work fine. It actually doesn't give you the strongest signal. Uh, but yes, things like lighter fluid and kerosene actually work really well because they have a lot of hydrogen in them. Oh, and plus, if you get cold, you can just, you know, light your torch. There you go. <laughs> right. So my, my proton precession magnetometer is, in fact, filled with kerosene. Oh, okay. Awesome. Great. Yeah. Does it leak uh, out? And it, it leaks out and evaporates, right? So most people, like, you have to refill these things, right? You have to refill them not very often. Uh, mine does leak out, hence why yeah. it's wrapped in packing tape. Oh, and also why it was on eBay, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, generally, you don't have to do it that often. Mm. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. So lots of hydrogens, because uh, lots of protons. That makes sense. Lots of protons. <laughs> and this container that your hydrogen-rich fluid is in mm-hmm. has either one or two electric coils around it. Okay, one or two. Right, so you can have a solenoid coil and a sense coil, or you can have one that's dual-purposed, and it just requires a little bit more fancy switching electronics. Oh, okay. So it's how advanced the design is on the electronics end. Okay, that makes sense. Gotcha. And the first thing that you do is you apply power to the solenoid coil, or to your only coil, and when I say power, I'm talking like 10 watts or more. Okay. That's a, that's a bit. Yeah, nothing negligible. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. And so when you do that, that generates a strong magnetic field. Right-hand rule. 
using your right hand rule. <laughs> so it's axially through the coil. Okay. Yeah. And hydrogen atoms are sort of like little bar magnets, right? Exactly. So they're all going to line up according to that field you've just given it. Yeah. So they all align axially. Okay. All the hydrogen atoms in your fluid. Uh, so you could think of them as being random state before, and now they're all pointing in the same direction. Now we turn that field off. And so here comes the procession part, right? Because they don't just snap back into their direction. It takes some energy to get there. And also, what are they getting to? Because now you haven't applied a field, so what's left over, right? Earth's magnetic field? That's what they want to get to. Yeah, so they're not really random to start with. That was a bit of a yeah. overgeneralization. Well, I mean, if you shake it up, maybe. So <laughs> they... Uh, yeah, they roughly orient to the Earth's magnetic field. Uh-huh. And that that's the strongest thing until you turn that coil on. But like you said, they can't just snap straight back to it. Uh, so what they end up doing is sort of orbiting around that vector as they settle back. You can think of it like when you wound up a top when you were a kid and pulled the string. And when it got low, it would start kind of wobbling around. It would process around the vertical axis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. The proton procession. Exactly. Ding, ding. <laughs> just, like, so, just like the flux gate. This is amazing. Look at these informative names on these instruments. <laughs> geophysicists are very creative as our engineers. <laughs> I mean, I think of them as the most creative of the scientists. You're right. <laughs> I mean, I, I will give you two guesses as to what the alkali vapor magnetometer we'll talk about next week uses a sensing medium. Mm, okay. I'll be thinking about it. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, so these little guys are hanging out. They want to process back into Earth's magnetic field, right? And so they eventually get there. But that processing does some other stuff too, right? Yeah, so now you have little tiny bar magnets all wobbling around in space together inside a coil. Uh-huh. So what's that going to make? Right-hand rule. <laughs> yeah, so you made it a little generator now. Now all these little bar magnets are generating small currents in the coil, mm-hmm. whether that be a pickup coil or the same coil. Okay, all right. So you're sitting there listening for all these little processing hydrogen atoms then, right? Yeah. Okay. And the stronger the Earth's magnetic field is, the higher the force pulling them back into that alignment is, so they process faster. Okay, and... That would be like if you're on top of a big ore body or something like that, as opposed to just out over some regular old dirt in a field. Or just, you know, if the diurnal variation's going up. Or that. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's very sensitive. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But you just got to sit there and wait on these little guys to process and then pick up their little frequencies. Right. And when we say wait, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's a fraction of a second. Yeah, yeah. But it's not instantaneous. No. No, not at all. Yeah. Okay, great. So these little guys are processing, and we're listening to it. Yeah, and it turns out it is 0.042576 hertz per nanotesla. That's awesome. (laughs) And what's really cool is there is nothing in there that says, well, this depends on temperature, or this depends on another. No, it depends on atomic constants only. (sighs) 
Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> one of, yeah. One of these things where all the assumptions are like, for real, man. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I'm sure if you got down into some some subatomic uh, theorist. No, no, we don't. We talking don't. about, but no. <laughs> yeah, we're not. We're not going quantum here. All right. <laughs> yes. Uh, we did quantum magnetometers once, and it hurt. Uh, it hurts. <laughs> Yeah. So as it turns out, uh, you can take what the Earth's magnetic field is at the equator, what the Earth's magnetic field is at the poles, do some math, and you come out with the equator, the precession frequency is about 900 hertz, and at the poles, it's about 4,200 hertz. That's impressive, the difference. Yeah. I mean, it completely makes sense, but... Also, I'd never put a number to it. Yeah, and so what we end up doing is measuring that precession frequency, doing some averaging over a few cycles, and then you do the math to get what the magnetic field is. Okay. And these are these are audible. Yeah. So it's in the audible range of hearing, and I seem to remember that there was an old proton precession magnetometer design but that actually had a headphone jack. That's awesome. So you could listen to it. Listen to the magnetic field. That is so cool. I feel like there's a, a symphony night in this or something. Yeah, you know, maybe I maybe I need to uh, finish resurrecting mm. the one that's in the garage for this. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think so. That could be our new. So... Th- it could be our new <laughs> theme music. Yeah. <laughs> the Earth's magnetic field over the last week. <laughs> I love it. That's great. <laughs> so you do that, but all this all this math is taking place in your electronics right there in your field kit that's hanging off of you very awkwardly, right? Yeah. And remember, I said this takes a decent amount of power. Uh-huh. Uh, most of these things take something like 8 to 12 D cells. Yeah. To just, run on. <laughs> just hook a car battery to the dang thing and carry it around because that's all geophysics is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a lot of the newer models had rechargeables, but mine, I think it's 10 D cells that Jeez. mine runs on. And that's impressive. Because I remember buying D cells and going, wow, I didn't remember these being this expensive last time I had <laughs> yeah. to buy D cells. No kidding. This is like buying batteries for a little remote control cars. You know, those things are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. So there are some catches, though. Yeah, you don't want to be smoking while you do this. <laughs> <laughs> right, there's flammable liquid. Uh, you need a roughly constant orientation right? So when you, you're measuring. So you don't want to be swinging this thing around because then you're changing coil and proton precession axes, right? Not so much that. More of this is getting sort of a mean field magnitude. Oh, okay. I got you. And if you change the orientation of the sensor wildly with respect to the field vector, it doesn't work so well. Gotcha. Uh, like sometimes you mount these in different orientations depending on what the magnetic dip where you are is to get the largest signal induced in the coil. Right, exactly, because you're, you know, vertical at the poles and horizontal at the equator or whatever, so... Right, and they have a north arrow on them just so you're consistent oh. when you're doing this, so you don't have them rotated 180 degrees. Like, you know, you you take part of a survey, you put it down for lunch, you pick it back up, and now it's 180 degrees backwards. 
and maybe because of some imperfections in the sensor manufacturing uh you get slightly different numbers yeah rough yeah Mm -hmm. so roughly oriented like it was more of well the sun's over here so that's north and i'm going to keep this arrow pointing sort of in that direction it's not an exact science yeah (laughs) and i mean the big caveat which is with any magnetometry you're doing is you don't want to you know be doing this next to a busy intersection or something yeah i don't know how many times i saw enter to field students do a survey only to realize that there is a metal culvert yeah there. Mm-hmm. ourselves included once mm-hmm. <laughs> we are not immune to this <laughs> nope uh, uh and sometimes it I mean, sometimes it's what you're looking for, right? Right, exactly. Well, I mean, that's definitely what you want to look for in an intro class. That's the best thing to do. <laughs> right. Uh, you also have actually had an issue before of seeming to get strange readings and finding out that the student uh, running it actually had some metal in their body. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, I think people laugh at us when we talk about when we do um, Kappa bridge measurements, which we'll talk about. Um, in one of these deep dive shows. So looking at magnetic susceptibility, I'm like, you know, you have to take your piercings out. Like you can't, it's that sensitive. You can't get close to it with a whole bunch of metal anywhere on you. You know, take your belt off, leave your phone outside. And they're like, ha ha. I'm like, no, for reals. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So these things are, as you mentioned before, very sensitive. Oh, yes. Uh, so some of the downsides, of course, are this just as a point measurement. So it's slow in a survey sense right. uh, some of the more modern ones i think the ones that ou has have the capability to store readings inside but i've seen a lot of students uh that you know they have to press the button read out the number somebody writes it down or types it in goes to the next one presses the button yep yeah, yeah. that's 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 what i remember from back in the day so. And they're power hungry. They're sort of heavy. You have to deal with if you're trying to ship them and the post office says, is there anything flammable? You have to go, well, yes. <laughs> it's a cylinder full of kerosene. That's fine, right? Right. <laughs> and I mean, you've got to stick these on a pole and they got to get them kind of high up in the air to get rid of, you know, the whole magnetization interference drops off square root of the radius or something like that. So it's nice to get them far enough away from you but that also makes it kind of hard to do for a long time right i guess you get lazy yeah you want to keep it relatively vertical um there yeah so the further it is off the ground if you're trying to ignore things in the very near surface like coins and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. you want it high up right um they also that they work in gradients up to about three thousand nanoteslas per meter mm-hmm. of elevation. Okay, which that encompasses most of what you're going to run into, which is nice. It doesn't encompass things like I'm a company looking for banded iron formations. <laughs> yeah, that might be a bit much. <laughs> yeah, so those gradients can get a little bit too intense for this type of sensor. It just doesn't work well i mean you have you think about it even at three thousand nanoteslas per meter there is a significant change in the magnetic field between the top and the bottom of your sensor right yeah exactly and so now that one frequency 
that these protons are processing at is spread out with height in the sensor. So instead of getting a single frequency back that you can easily detect, uh-huh. you're getting this spectra of combined things. Uh, much like all the magne- magnetic minerals I try to look at. I feel like that's what everything is. <laughs> a smushed out spectra. <laughs> Right. Uh, <laughs> and then trying to decompose, I mean, what does that mean? Because you have such a high field. Right. Yeah. It's, right. It works great, except unless you're looking for iron. <laughs> Which sounds very ironic. <laughs> uh, and these are actually really heavily used in archaeology because of their sensitivity. So you can put these things down close to the ground if you're not looking for geologic things and go and try to find artifacts or foundations of buildings, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I really liked using these. I thought they were fun. It's nice that they're so um, accurate, you know, even though it is an old design and it's a fairly simplistic design too, right? I imagine you can get fancy now with the electronics end of it. Yeah, but fundamentally it's a container of kerosene, a coil of wire, and some signal processing. Yeah, that's nice. Now, I know that if somebody's listening that is an engineer working on magnetometer design. <laughs> no, yes, there are nuances and complications. But fundamentally, that's what we're talking about. It's not something that takes three pages to explain. Right. Yeah, exactly. Here's your tube of kerosene and um, yeah, stick this Arduino to it, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, there, there have been some open proton precision magnetometer projects. Uh, you can find them on like Hackaday. And there is a book which you can buy on Amazon for $10 called Signals from the Subatomic World, How to Build a Proton Precession Magnetometer. Oh, my gosh. Do you own this or did you just look it up? Oh, no. I've owned this for years. Of course you have. (laughs) Back when you were a young magnetometer enthusiast. (laughs) Yeah. No, I definitely bought it while I was still at OU. Oh, man. Uh, The picture on the front of this book is priceless. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's got a bunch of weird looking green hydrogen atoms. (laughs) Yeah. And so they take you through a design. It's a very analog, fussy design. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's very accurate. I think you could probably do a little better now with some modern DSP in terms of reducing complexity. Uh, Okay. Gotcha. But I say this as somebody who hasn't tried it. Uh, if I do get some some time to to play with things, I would like to try building a proton precession magnetometer from scratch. There are several different plans online. I think I can come up with one that's pretty straightforward, and I think it'd be a lot of fun to say like, okay, kids, like we're gonna we're gonna take some measurements and we're gonna set this thing out somewhere on campus for two days and hope nobody calls it in as a suspicious package. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, we're going to take some data. Yeah, that's cool. Because it is a little less fussy than a flux gate to set up and take data with. Uh Maybe not in the design and construction. Gotcha. But it it measures total magnetic field, not necessarily magnetic field oriented in the direction of the sensor, like the flux gate. Okay. Uh, So you can't get vector components from this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You only get magnitude, not magnitude and direction. So that is one downside as well. That's true. But, I mean, it's all depending on what you're looking for. 
True, and I have never used vector component magnetic field data. That's all I do. Okay, asterisk, (laughs) yes. In the field. Yes. In the laboratory, vector data is very common. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That is correct. Yeah, um, these are real fun. It makes me want to ask where they're at and get them out again. Oh, we'll have to talk. I knew where they used to be <laughs> recently. Oh, so. okay. All right. We will, they also uh, need some replacements done on their backup batteries, but we can. Yeah. <laughs> God, don't you all? Oh, my gosh. I swear, every geophysicist gets handed like a stack of stock at Duracell or something as soon as they graduate. <laughs> They're like, thanks for keeping us alive, guys. <laughs> it's true. We, we like our power-hungry instruments. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's for sure. You're like, how could this be more inconvenient to carry around outside near rocks? <laughs> oh, yeah. More batteries. Exactly. Oh, my Lord. And, and having done some field instrumentation design before, like, man, you don't know how many things are magnetic until you try to design an instrument that contains no magnetic components. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> it's so frustrating oh man i remember getting our new capper bridge and being like okay what else do we have to get oh look at this metal desk that we just put this thing on yep that's got to go out of the room you know so we have these like yep. ancient wooden chairs in there you know and everything and just wooden pencils and all this stuff yeah yeah it's real annoying yeah and some of the things that i've had to make for you all in your capper bridge where we've had to machine it out of like pure new teflon yeah <laughs> yep exactly and some pretty extraordinary things there and, so. and acrylic that you wouldn't think would have magnetic stuff in it that that does who knows what it is <laughs> so yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's real fun magnetometry is very fun <laughs> <laughs> well so that is the proton precession magnetometer we'll talk again about alkali vapor next week and we'll see what other things we uh we end up throwing into the series, but those are going to be the three main types I really want to talk about because that's what you'll run into in most university storerooms. Yeah, I think we should build a metal detector on the air together and then go outside and see what we find. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, see, that could be the, the rest of the deep dive. <laughs> we'll, we'll get a metal detector kit. Yeah, sounds good. All right. <laughs> well, that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yeah. You didn't pack the cowbell yet. <laughs> no, the cowbell will stay out. Beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, man, Xavier gives us some great stuff, right? And he didn't disappoint again this week. Yes. So this is unfortunately uh, behind a paywall. So we'll try to refrain our discussion mostly to the publicly available article about it. Uh, But this was a recent paper that came out in Science. Right. So this is inferring Earth's discontinuous chemical layering from the 660-kilometer boundary topography. Um, You said this is really recent, and this is from Wu et al. And I love how just we were just talking about how inventive you guys are. And this is another, (laughs) the 660-kilometer boundary (laughs) doesn't leave any doubt about what it is. Well, and they say in their, you know, lacking a formal name, researchers simply call it the 660-kilometer boundary. Uh, we're a little more creative than that. We generally just say the 660. Oh, my goodness. 
And, and you know, you can say the 440 or the 660, and most seismologists know exactly what you mean. You know, uh, the Mohorovic discontinuity is so much more exciting. It just doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> oh, poor Moho. Um, so... So this is great because we just did this in class today when we were talking about the layers of the earth and that's what these discontinuities are, right? Is they're showing some differences in the layers of the earth. It's not just crust, mantle, core. There's a lot more stuff going on. Right. And so the core, or sorry, the mantle is about 80%, a little over 80% of the earth by volume. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's a lot of argument over whether there is an upper mantle and a lower mantle argument i just assumed there was <laughs> and how they're divided if they're divided why they're divided what property makes it and do we sort of use this 660 for the dividing line right right exactly. uh, because there is a seismic discontinuity here there is a speed difference so something happens uh-huh um and how are we going to probe that is it just a static 660 kilometer boundary is it something that is a geothermal chemical dependent thing that makes it very consistent and homogeneous in depth or i guess radius would be the better way to put it yeah there you go (laughs) in radius from the the center of the earth Mm -hmm. or is it bumpy and lumpy turns out it's bumpy and lumpy huh (laughs) it is and with massive like topography that's as large or larger than that on the earth this is really weird um so in order to see down here at all, right, we're talking about seismology, um, you need really big trucks or really big dynamite, right? This is how we do it? No. (laughs) You can use Earth's natural seismic tendencies and use these really big earthquakes to get a picture of the Earth. And that's what these researchers are doing, right? Specifically, um, the big earthquake in Bolivia, the 8.2, I mean, it's kind of old though, that happened in 1994. Yes, yeah, so this is the second biggest earthquake recorded in modern seismology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, to get to get a signal to go through these layers and tell you some things about the inner Earth and emerge with again useful information, like a magnitude seven is kind of the lower cutoff, and that's pretty low in terms of a source. <laughs> Which seems ridiculous to say, but yeah. <laughs> and the other thing you really want are deep earthquakes. You want the source to be down deep where we don't have all that pesky crustal junk to complicate things. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little noisy when you're ringing the outer layer, you know. So it's really nice if we've got, and there, there are earthquakes that are very deep mm-hmm. uh, down in the mantle. Mm-hmm. So it's nice when you get a big one of those. This earthquake, I don't remember what the depth is on it, but yeah, it was an 8.4. So it was a large source and everybody's going to say, well, yeah, you know, an 8.4 but we know that every point on the magnitude scale is uh, 10 times more energy. And that's wrong. That's another misconception. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I knew you were going to get worked up about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was teaching last week, somebody said, you seem to have strong opinions on everything. And I said, yes, yes, I do. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> that's hilarious. So it's 10 times the shaking it's 30 times the energy. Yeah. So the even bigger. It's 30 times more energy than a 7. Even bigger than you thought. Right. <laughs> isn't it like 32? It's not 30. Isn't it 32 times? 
Uh, it's just 30. Oh. Mm. I wonder where I got that. It's just trying to work you so, up again. <laughs> so 8.2 magnitude earthquake. So this is very, very large. And we really don't get that many of them. So mm-hmm. they did this uh, with some some nice tomographic techniques. And it, one of the the authors, uh, Winbo Wu, described I thought in an interesting way, a way I haven't heard seismology talked about before necessarily. Uh-huh. Of he said, Well, pretty much all objects have a surface roughness, and that's what causes them to scatter light, and that's what means that we can see them. Yeah. And this is the same thing. If it has roughness, then it's going to scatter seismic energy and we can see that. Yeah. And we can learn about its roughness. That's kind of cool. And the roughness in this case translates to just that. Like, what does the topography at that 660 layer look like? And we're talking, you know, 29,000 feet plus. So this was actually a statistical model. So they can't say, you know, in this part of the earth, there is a peak of so many feet or so many kilometers. Right. Um, But we know that it's as big as topography on earth, if not larger. Right. And Everest is 29,000, 29 feet in case you're trying to figure out how big a 29,000 foot mountain is. Right. In case you're in, you know, the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so that, that translates to, you know, 8.8 kilometers or so. Yeah. There you go. Uh, So they came up with this, this model and well what does it mean well one thing is though that sounds huge remember we're talking about something at 660 kilometers down so even eight kilometers we're between one and two percent of the depth is the variation yeah in this roughness right but i mean we knew something was there right so what makes this new and interesting we had no idea if it was rough okay we didn't know anything other than that there was a transition that was roughly at 660 kilometers worldwide because you'd have to have some either physical or chemical difference to to see it you know as a change in the seismic reflection or whatever right right okay so we didn't know so we didn't know why it was there and we still don't correct Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and you know one of the one of the reviewers of this pointed out that they thought it was really inspiring that we could find something that was a few kilometers on something that deep, you know, that's something that's a percent. Yeah, yeah that is true. Uh, and, okay, so some of the implications here <laughs> come down to maybe this can be used to inform some modeling about how these upper and lower mantle do mantle processes. Okay. Uh, like heat transfer is the whole mantle convecting is the lower mantle convecting and transferring heat at this boundary and then the upper mantles convecting separately uh we don't know is it well mixed is it not well mixed and so hopefully the idea that this is uh bumpy can tell us some about that mixing so maybe where it's smoother there's more vertical mixing it's more homogeneous but where there are the the bumps this may be where the upper and lower mantle aren't mixing well ah okay yeah great and that mixing comes from the fact that we're recycling earth's crust right and so where does that stuff go and that could be these chemical differences right because we're constantly recycling both oceanic well mostly oceanic 
crust, but also continental crust too. Right. So it's pretty crazy to think that slabs of seafloor might still exist. Yeah. In the mantle. Yeah. At the 660 level. That's crazy. You would think they would already be obliterated by then. You you would. I mean, these are big, cold, thick chunks of rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Way to survive, guys. So maybe... Oh, man. See, this is getting my Earth history going. So at the end of the Permian, we had 96% of life on Earth die, right? So maybe that was a big impact crater in the seafloor and that chunk of rock has been subducted already and maybe we could find it how good is your seismic modeling huh this is a good thing to see what we could do i'm not saying it's aliens but it's aliens <laughs> uh, that, that's what i'm hearing in that <laughs> uh, always your go-to <laughs> uh no so the one of the other interesting things here is you might say well why do you think it's a chemical discontinuity something that was just a thermal discontinuity they did some modeling in this paper and were able to determine that if it were just a small-scale thermal thing that caused this bumpiness that that would diffuse out and become smooth again within a million years or so okay Mm -hmm. and since we've been around and that boundary's been around more than a million years by quite a bit yeah and the fact that it's still bumpy is telling us uh, that there's something else going on there. Yeah. And so, hence that explanation. Yeah. So, this was a really interesting study. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And one that, yes, when I've heard some things about, well, you know, seismic, everything's, I think maybe a certain co host always likes to say that everything in geophysics is non unique. Uh, I wonder who that is. <laughs> Uh, While it's true, being able to get these kind of details out of data, especially data from 1994, is really awesome. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, makes use of these big horrific earthquakes, you know, that we have too, or at least giving us something more than just death and destruction, right? It's a great seismic source to see what's happening inside. Because we don't know a lot about it, you know? We don't know... How are how the magnetic field works and how all that convection works deep in the earth? Right. So this is really cool. Well, if you have a theory on why there are bumps the size of Mount Everest <laughs> on the 660 discontinuity, we would love to hear it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Send us your alien theories to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together we are at Don't Panic Geo. Uh, I'm sure we always talk about aliens in the Slack chat room, right? We'll do that over there. We're on the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. And if you would like to support us, we are patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.